Well, please do uh, turn uh, in your Bibles to uh, the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> I've just finished a little series uh, back at the Tron through the Proverbs, dipping into different themes, and uh, so I picked one of these for you this morning. Um, and uh, we're looking at Proverbs chapter 15 and uh, verses 13 to 17. So I'll give you a second to turn that up. Proverbs 15. And reading from verse 13 there. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil. But the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where lovers than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Now we give away more than we realize with our faces. They are bigger windows into the realities of our hearts than we often admit. And as somebody stands in front of a church each Sunday, you get to see people's faces, and they give away quite a lot. So as soon as I say that, everyone's suddenly sparking up a bit, looking a bit more cheerful. But verse 13 there, take a look at that. It poses the question, what are our faces revealing? A glad heart makes a cheerful face. So what do our faces say about us? Verse 13 is the Proverbs equivalent of a cosmetics advert. Here is the secret to looking good. Forget about oil of ole, which promises to make you look seven years younger. Here is the key to a cheerful face. A glad heart, says Proverbs, makes a cheerful face. So the answer to looking well is not the application of the latest moisturizer, but something deeper is required. It is, says Proverbs, our hearts that are the key key to a happy-looking face. But it's not just how we look, is it? This isn't about projecting some image that bears no correlation to the reality within. Proverbs is making the opposite point. This is not urging us to fix a fake grin on our faces and pretend all is well. I think it was John Knox who said that a happy heart leads to happy looks. Sad thoughts crush the spirit. And our faces, they do in general, don't they? They do reveal the inner state of our hearts. Try as we might, our faces give away what's going on. And a glad heart, a happy heart, is something that we are to desire as Christians. God doesn't intend us as his children to be miserable to be downcast throughout life. Now, this is not to say that we will sail through life only ever experiencing positive emotions, never struggling, never sad. That would clearly fly in the face of our own experiences, wouldn't it? It would contradict much what the Bible teaches us about life. Uh, It would fly in the face of my past week. I've been on holiday. It's meant to be a great joyful time, but it's actually been a bit of a struggle. So... uh, Life is not just a bed of roses. That's not what this is saying. We face hardship. We face illness. We face loss. 
Life is not always easy. But as Christians, we do need to grasp all that the Bible teaches us. And we need to grasp this little section in Proverbs. It it smacked me right between the eyes when I was reading through Proverbs, this little section here. And uh, we've got to take note of it because God has not saved us to be brought into his eternal family so that we'd be miserable. That's not what he saved us for. It is not the case that life is all misery now with joy to come in the new creation. There is joy to be experienced in this world. We need to remember what it is we've been saved from and what we've been saved for. Saved from sin and death and estrangement from our Creator and saved for life and restored relationship with God and with each other. We are part of God's eternal family and so we live now with the bright light of the faint dawn of eternity just beginning to peer up over the horizon. Proverbs 4, verse 18, you might just want to turn to it, it's a lovely verse. And this is our perspective as God's people. Proverbs 4, verse 18, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. You see, we live now, today, with the light of eternity and the joy of eternity, the joy of being part of God's eternal family. That is something we begin to enjoy now and experience now. Not fully, in part, but we do feel something of that now. We anticipate an eternity with our Father in the new creation, a world free from sin and suffering and death. We look forward to that. That is our destination. That is our sure hope. And so we can live now with that future reality coloring our present experiences We're not saved to be miserable, but rather we're saved to be glad of heart, cheerful of heart. One preacher put it this way, most people look better and many are transformed when they smile. If we are rejoicing in Christ with the merriness of heaven, it should be showing in our faces, which are a pretty good reflection of the real thoughts of our hearts. This does not mean that we will all have fatuous grins on our faces all the time, but there will be something about the way we look that will convey the deep springs of joy within us. It's not trite joy that Proverbs is talking about here. This is not a put-on happiness. This is a radiant joy that has solid and deep foundations in our soul. And you can tell sometimes, can't you? You can tell that someone's a Christian. You can spot them just the way they look, the way they go about their day. There's something about them. You can't quite put your finger on it, but you just know. Perhaps you move to a new street or you start a new job, and you meet someone, you just got a suspicion. You just know, don't you, that they're a Christian, and later on it turns out they are. You can see sometimes in someone's demeanor in their face that they belong to our Father in heaven. There is a radiant joy, a deep joy, deep in the foundations of our souls. And this deep joy will permeate all of life and will find greater satisfaction, greater happiness as we pilgrim through this barren land towards eternity. Derek Kidner, in his book on Proverbs, makes this point. He says, Our prevailing attitude of heart affects not only our faces there in verse 13, our personality, 
but also our whole experience that makes life, verse 15, a continual feast. I don't know about you, but that sounds good to me. By, by nature, I'm probably more of an eel than a tigger, but I am a child of the king of the universe. And so are you, if you're a Christian here this morning. And God desires that we be glad of heart and not unduly sorrowful. Remember Jesus' prayer for his followers in John 17. He said, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We're warned against lack of joy. Deuteronomy 28, verse 47, Because, Moses says there, you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you. We're warned against a lack of joy, a lack of gladness. So, that's by way of preamble. What does Proverbs teach us, then, about the joyful heart? Three things, three questions this morning. First, what is the heart? What does it mean here when it talks about the heart? And it's key that we know what Proverbs is talking about when it mentions the heart. The heart is referred to several times in this short section. It's twice there in verse 13. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. Verse 14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. And then again, middle of verse 15, the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. And that word heart, it's a very important Bible word. One writer says it's the most important anthropological term in the Old Testament. But the English language has no direct equivalent, so I'm told. It's used 46 times in Proverbs alone, and a total of 858 times in the Old Testament. So what is the heart in Bible terms? Well, the heart controls the whole body. Facial expressions, as we've seen in our passage, controls our tongues and all other parts of our bodies. Our heart is the very center of our psychological being. Our intellects and will are shaped by our hearts. It is the inner forum where our decisions are made. It's the very center of our spiritual lives. The heart, writes one scholar, says it's the center of all of a person's emotional, intellectual, religious, moral activity. And he says it must be safeguarded above all things. Tim Keller puts it this way. In the Bible, the heart is not primarily the seat of the emotions in contrast to the head as the seat of reason. Rather, the heart is the seat of your deepest trusts, commitments, and loves from which everything flows. What the heart loves most and trusts, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. The heart is the very center, the epicenter of who we are, the core of our being. And therefore, the state of our heart is really very important, isn't it? That is what we mean by the word heart. So let's consider, second, what the happy, joyful heart produces. What does the joyful heart lead to? Well, in general terms, a healthy heart means a healthy person. Physically, that's true but also spiritually and emotionally. In the fullest sense, in the Bible sense of heart, a healthy heart means a healthy person. A healthy heart 
as verse 13 tells us, produces a healthy-looking person. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. A good heart is seen in one's personality, one's outlook. There is something about the way we look that will convey the deep springs of joy within us. The wise and happy heart tends to lead to cheerful emotions, whereas the foolish heart, look at the end of verse 13, by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. A healthy heart means a healthy enjoyment of life. Look at verse 15. The cheerful of heart has a continual feast. A good heart is the filter through which we experience all of life. And the opposite is also true. Uh, As one preacher observes, it's not so much that life has a drab and dreary look about it as that our attitude to it makes it seem so. You can have two people experiencing the very same realities and yet have a totally contrasting understanding of it because of the underlying attitude of heart. You have two people experience the very same thing, but yet they have got a totally different experience of it because of the fundamental orientation of their heart. And for Christians, we have a fundamentally renewed outlook on life. A man in Christ sees life with new eyes. To what to other men seem like misfortunes or even disasters, a man of Christ sees them as opportunities and challenges. James Philip said this, there are two ways of looking at any situation. If we are gloomy of heart, we will be filled with foreboding. But if our heart is resilient, we shall look at it straight in the eye Accept it as from God and make capital out of it. The choice is ours. And so the very fundamental disposition of our heart, gloomy or resilient, the disposition of our hearts will fundamentally determine how we experience life. Good circumstances. Good circumstances are not necessary for a happy, cheerful heart. Again, uh, Bruce Walker, an Old Testament scholar, said that the afflicted in health or wealth may have a cheerful heart that enables them to endure and to overcome their circumstances. And the Apostle Paul testifies to that same reality, doesn't he, in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now we'll think more in a moment about how it is that we can cultivate a Paul-like attitude. But note the outcomes of the sort of heart that Proverbs commends. In any and every circumstance... He is content. Plenty or hunger, abundance or need. Outward circumstances will come and they will go. They will change. And so to base our satisfaction on those things, that's foolishness. Rather, it's the disposition of our hearts that will significantly determine how we experience life. Take uh, parenting, 
for example, which I think many in this room will be experiencing at this very moment. A gloomy outlook, and you will see worries and troubles at every turn. Our children's friendships, getting to grips with education, discipline, and then most importantly, their growing knowledge and love and service of the Lord. All these can be seen as problems that crush us and cause us to worry. Rather, looking at these things with a steady eye of faith, because you know that you belong to your Heavenly Father, as do they, because you know you're sovereign over all things, you can see these not as problems to run from, but as challenges and opportunities to take on and thrive through. I'm clinging to that this week after a pretty tough one with the kids. <laughs> but that is what the happy heart produces. We can't change our circumstances. Life comes at us. But the fundamental disposition of our hearts will determine how we experience those things. We're not immune from suffering and loss and hardship as Christians. But how we experience them, well, it depends on our hearts. So, we thought about what the heart is, what does the joyful heart produce, and thirdly and significantly, here we go, how do we attain the joyful heart? How do we attain the cheerful heart? Well, the heart, look at verse 14, the heart's spiritual vitality seems to derive from pursuing knowledge. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. Now, we consume information, ideas all the time, and these do, in a very real way, feed our hearts. Our hearts are being fed one way or the other, and so these verses in Proverbs encourage us to be thoughtful and deliberate about what we are feeding our hearts with. There is no neutral option when it comes to our hearts. There is no sleep mode when it comes to our hearts. We will either be feeding on something good and wholesome, or we'll be feeding on folly. And given the emphasis that Proverbs places on the importance of having a glad and joyful heart, not a gloomy, sorrowful one, we would do well to listen carefully to what it teaches us here about how to cultivate the joyful, healthy heart. And so verse 14 commends one who has understanding, or one who has a discerning heart. The discerning is set against the fool. See, the fool feeds only on folly. And this can be read in two senses. One, in terms of what the fool delights in and what he seeks nourishment in. Folly is the opposite of wisdom, says Proverbs. The fool, according to Proverbs, is fixed in the correctness of his own opinion. Instead of seeking knowledge, seeing it as desirable and something to be cherished and sought after, he runs the other way, thinking he knows it already. That is how the fool is portrayed through the book of Proverbs. They think they know it all. I don't need to submit myself to God's Word. I don't need to seek knowledge. I've got it all already. I've got it sorted. And I wonder if that's sometimes our posture as we gather Sunday by Sunday. Perhaps it's not as blatant as running the other way, as we see here in Proverbs. But even as we're sat here in the presence of other believers, in the presence of God himself around his word, is our attitude one of superiority? Do we perhaps think we know it all? 
do we easily and too quickly dismiss what we hear from the pulpit because we don't like it? Do we measure the preaching here against the preaching on our favorite podcast? Now, I'm all for nourishing ourselves with good resources, but the thing about the preacher on a podcast or on YouTube is that he's not here. He's not here. He is not your pastor. He does not know the circumstances of your life. He doesn't know Edinburgh North Church. And he does not have to give an account on the last day for you because he's not your pastor. The pastor here has been charged with the well-being of your souls. And so you might need to be slow to dismiss what you hear from this pulpit in favor of some chap from halfway around the globe, one who has never looked into your eyes and seen your cheerful face or your gloomy one. The pastor on the other side of the world has never sat with you as you shed tears, has never shared joys with you either. So what are you feeding on? How is your heart being nourished? And make it a priority to start here. Sunday by Sunday, as often as you gather in your midweek groups, gather around God's Word. That is where we go to be nourished and fed. That is where we find knowledge. So what are you feeding on? The heart, says verse 14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. Now the second sense of this phrase the mouth of fools feed on folly, has the idea of not so much what the fool consumes, but rather what he says with his mouth. We thought about what we consume, what we feed ourselves on, but the fool doesn't seek knowledge, but rather finds satisfaction spouting forth his own opinions. That's the sense you get there. So if you find yourself in the sorrowful of heart category, rather than the cheerful of heart category, it might be worth doing an audit of your verbal word count and the content of your words. If you are constantly speaking your own opinions without much regard for what the Bible would teach on a matter, if you're a hard person to correct, if you are beyond challenge, if you are proud, then don't be surprised. If you find yourself rather being a cheerful sort, you're sorrowful. Being so quick to offer opinions leaves no space to receive and to receive solid wisdom and knowledge. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. So don't be a fool. Don't feed on folly. Rather, seek understanding. Look on to verses 16 and 17. That's rather sobering, isn't it? Verse uh, 14 and 15 there. But verses 16 and 17 bring some color to what it is to pursue knowledge. Just look at these verses there, 16 and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. So two things we see in these verses. Fear of the Lord, verse 16, and love for others, verse 17. The, the heart's 
spiritual condition, these verses say, the heart's spiritual condition is of greater importance than material well-being. It is better to fear the Lord and have a little than have great treasure and trouble. It is better to have good relationships and a meager meal. It's better to have that than have a great feast with those you don't like. But you see, the world will teach us the opposite. The world will tell us that great treasure and great feasting will deliver happiness. Our adverts teach us that all the time. And we fall for it. At least I do. But the writer of Proverbs says, don't strive after those things. Rather, fear the Lord and love others. In other words, be in right relationship with those around you and primarily with the Lord himself. We have been saved for joyful living as God's children for eternity and for today. And so to enjoy life with a cheerful heart, not a gloomy one, that will require us to prioritize what is of truly greater importance, what will truly nourish our hearts. And what will truly nourish us and cherish us and nourish our hearts is serving God and loving God and seeking after Him and serving and loving those who He's placed us around us. We must prioritize those relationships over material things. Those relationships are more vital than luxury and comfort and good foods. And we so often strive after those material things thinking they will make us happy. See, verse 13 doesn't say great treasure makes a cheerful face. Verse 13 doesn't say a fattened ox makes a cheerful face. It's not to say we can't enjoy those things, but those things can never be the source of true contentment and happiness, can they? No, it's the glad heart that makes a cheerful face. And a glad heart comes only through feeding on the good food the Lord gives us in his words and by cherishing our relationship with him and by loving those who he's put around us. It is profoundly other-centeredness that delivers true joy. Verse 15 does not say the possessor of great treasure has a continual feast. It doesn't say the possessor of a fattened ox has a continual feast. No. The cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Our thoughts, our attitudes, shaped by our relationship with God, not our circumstances, are decisive when it comes to our joy in life. God intends us to be a joyful people. He has given abundantly to us, hasn't he? We have life where there used to be death. We have an eternity to come. We belong to the king and creator of the universe. And we have in our hands, in his words, his instructions for living well and living wisely in his world. We have every reason to have cheerful faces, to see life as a continual feast, not a trite, put on happiness, but a deep, unshakable, solid joy. And it comes as we submit to his word, as we seek understanding, and as we seek to love him and love those he's put around us. Let me pray, and then we'll conclude with our final hymn. Father God, we thank you 
for your word. We thank you for these verses, which we may skip over as we read through your word, but help us to take note. Help us to hear and heed these words that we would be a people of deep and unshakable joy because we are yours. So help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.